Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Book Shambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles producer Trent here. Thanks as always to our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is the address to go to to subscribe. Subscribers get extended episodes each and every week, plus uh, lots of exclusive stuff as well, like the Tips for Existence series and the Uncanny Hour series, and some behind-the-scenes bits and bobs as well. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, or last week rather, we've put out two extended uh, video scenes from an Uncanny Hour with both Stuart Lee and Mark Kermo talking about Italian Westerns and Stanley Kubrick. So if you are a Patreon uh, you can check those out, or if you'd like to become a patron, you can sign up and then check those out. Reminder as well that tomorrow night we are live at the More Than Words Literary Festival, live online. That is with Michael Spicer. Looking forward to that. You can find tickets on the More Than Words website. But for now, let's get on with this week's episode. Here is Robin and Josie chatting to the writer Lauren Euler. <laughs> First of all, hello, and thank you for, for, for joining us. And I wanted to, because we mentioned Kurt Vonnegut quite a lot on this podcast, and I don't think we've mentioned him for a few weeks, and it does seem that your book, Fake Accounts, that whole Vonnegut thing of we are who we pretend to be, so we must be very careful who we pretend to be, seems to play quite a part in what Fake Accounts is about, is about the way that we can create illusions of different forms of personality. Yeah, I think so. I actually had, I learned about that quote from someone on Twitter, which is all the plays also into the themes of fake accounts. <laughs> um, and, and I usually, you know, say it in a much less eloquent, um, pithy sort of way, which is something like, uh, you know, if you pretend to be a 27 year old girl on Twitter all day every day or if you pretend to be a conspiracy theorist on Instagram all day every day um, that says something about your life uh, what does it say about your life is open to interpretation but um, it's not just it's not as simple as saying you know there's a real essential self somewhere and then there's like the fake thing that you present to everyone else I think that that is um, simplifying it uh, a bit too much when did you first become because you're of a generation where this has always been here whereas whereas I'm not and I I remember someone that I knew an elderly man who who for some reason started to tell me one night that he spent a lot of time in lesbian chat rooms and I said you do have to realize that all of the lesbians you're talking to are elderly men with exactly the same mustache as you and you know this uh, and I, I I was pretty certain whatever world he was in was very much an illusory world when did you kind of become aware of that sense that, well, you can be whoever you want, but who do I know who I'm talking to? Because if everyone's playing this game. Well, I don't know if I can't, I don't know. I must've come to it late or I feel sort of naive because I was very sort of into being on Twitter when I was finishing university. And, and I, when I graduated from university, I moved to Berlin um and I was just on on the internet all the time and people would be like having these crazy sort of aggressive fights with each other about about like political issues or about literature or about whatever 
um, and also sort of you know projecting sort of things about themselves that couldn't possibly be true or but but people bought it or people allowed them to do it all um you know throughout their conversations with them and then sort of took their personas and used it against them whenever it was convenient for whatever argument someone was making and i was watching this and it's sort of horrifying because um, unlike, you know, a chat room from the good old days of the internet, when you could just come up, you came up with a, a username that was kind of funny and you just left it at that. A lot of these people that I was um, watching and, and to be fair, participating in, I was participating in this as well, were like using their real names and doing this under the ground, under the guise of some kind of professional, um, thing right like i'm on i'm a professional writer i'm on twitter in part so that i can promote my articles that i write and, and get assignments from editors and now I promote my book and, and things like that so there are all these people online who remember me from when i was like 22 being incredibly obnoxious um and i also in turn remember them from 10 years ago when they were being incredibly obnoxious and now they sort of the ideal trajectory is that you become more successful more professional and you sort of grow up or whatever but it's there's something very odd about having all of this personality data and narrative about all these strangers um that you shouldn't know about at all yes and it feels like it's only going to accrue and accrue like get worse and well worse is perhaps the wrong word but get bigger and harder to deal with and harder to manage and understand Absolutely. And I, like, I feel that way about um, because politically the past five years there was uh, we had a socialist leader of the Labour Party and that was very divisive. So then for me, seeing people who hated him, I'm like, I won't forget. I won't forget. <laughs> no, so totally. It, like, it's changed, you know, and I can imagine with Trump, you know, people like the idea that people you thought you could trust would then come out for Trump is like, you'll never forget, <laughs> you know, and I, I feel like no. these these online platforms are very revelatory in a manner that people actually can't control enough to sort of present themselves yeah absolutely and and whenever i have i have this sort of reverse epiphany which is to say like whenever i have a normal thought that i could tweet about and then instead i just have a conversation with someone about it in person i feel like i've been, had made some kind of achievement um which is sort of dark but i think that that the psychology is such that you want to put out all sorts of thoughts that like, you know, maybe you should, you, you can have a stupid thought authentically, but maybe if you took a little bit more time with it, you would revise it or whatever. And when you publish something, there's a certain finality about it, even if we think of the internet as sort of ephemeral and overwhelming. So, you know, nothing gets remembered really, actually quite a lot gets remembered. Mm. And what you don't know is how much any one little piece of information matters, I guess. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that. Did writing the book change how you felt about the internet? And did it change your kind of ideas and opinions about the material that you're writing about? I think it did a, a bit. I would say that writing the book um, made deepened my understanding of the dynamics that take place there and also allowed me to sort of um, transcend some of the things that used to upset me about the internet right um oh the funniest thing that happened to me was when this book came out a, a woman that i've never met um uh tried to start a rumor on her private instagram account that i had never read madame bovary and 
<laughs> Why? And I listen, I don't know. I don't know. But this Did is you say fascinating. No, I, I've never talked about Madame Bovary in my life. Um, but it's funny, like I haven't read a lot of classic and important novels, um, but I have read Madame Bovary. So I don't know. And, and it's just this, like some of the things that people latch on to and then try to use to like harm someone um, are extremely bizarre and it's kind of fun in that way. Um, but <laughs> yes, I do think that it's changed my relationship to the internet, also promoting the book um, in this kind of um, endless loop of, of you know, metacritical, it's a book about Twitter and I'm posting about it on Twitter and all this stuff has, has made me develop a healthy distance from, from it. Um, I think in part just because I'm using it as a self-promotional tool in a really explicit way, as opposed to in the past when you're sort of like, oh, maybe I'll make a friend while I'm also generating random followers for, for my um, professional life. Do you think this, because I was thinking the 20th century has often been called the century of self and it feels that the 21st century says, oh, no, 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 20th century, you really weren't. But is this a different, This is, is the 21st century a kind of, is this now the century of pseudo self? Is this the century where the number of persona you can have is... Well, can be overbearing because I think that's what I find. I know I've talked about this with Josie before. One of the fascinating things with the internet is if you are attempting to represent yourself and not some specific thing, you will sometimes find, oh, I didn't know my friends thought this. I didn't know. So you find out who is wearing a number of masks sometimes depending on who they're with so if they're with Josie they might go oh, I better I'll be a little bit more political with Josie actually and I'm going to talk about that because and then Josie suddenly goes looks at the internet and goes oh that's a really different kind of attitude and that to me is that makes it to keep all of your different selves together is quite an overbearing thing Absolutely. And I think, too, even just on a basic level, the way you come off on the Internet de depends on what kind of writer you are and if you understand language in a certain way. Right. So someone can be really charming and charismatic in person and, and seem one way and then they can seem like extremely self-serious and maudlin and like kind of moralistic online. And you're like, who what is the what's the real thing? And you there's this sort of dissonance that's kind of disturbing, like you say. Um, but also, I think there's again this like do you do they do the the thing that torments me and i think probably part, one of the big reasons i i started writing this novel was the question of how serious everyone is which is to say do they know that there's this disconnect between their quote-unquote real self and their sort of internet self are they doing it on purpose are they trying are they angling for something and in, in presenting themselves online in a certain way or are do they really think that no one is going to notice the disconnect between them and and i don't you know it probably depends but i don't really have a good answer for that either but i felt like the book was good at exploring lots of ways that different people do that and the ways that different people approach i was thinking about all the dating scenes and about you know each of these different people some of them are really sincere and some of them are real idiots and uh, but I, I tell you what i thought that was that I didn't expect from your book was, I, I, I don't know why I was like, well, flaky counts, there's gonna be a lot of people out to harm. And I felt <laughs> like it wasn't about people who were setting out to harm. It was about people who felt lost and disconnected, sort of not really understanding how to kind of get beyond that. Yeah, and I think 
if if the 21st century if we're defining it in some terms of the loss of self or the de the, the time of the pseudo self or something um part of it is i think a struggle that many people have myself included to sort of um figure out an organizing principle for their lives in any way. So, so when you can be anything and you can pretty much do anything within certain limits, um, you, there's no reason to do anything, you know, there's no reason to be one way or another. And I think I see the, the narrator of the book as like searching for some kind of like white, right way to be um, or, or some, some way to be that she will find um, acceptable or, or not uh, totally um, torturous in some way or totally false. Um, and, and I think too, it was important for me to, for the consequences to be extremely minor. I think there's often a sort of hyperbolic quality to the, the things that we write now um, in part because of the internet and you have to sort of compete for attention. So everyone's kind of screaming about the worst possible scenario. Um, but often you find that you sort of lie to someone and nothing bad, you know, nothing bad happens. Nobody cares. Um, I think that's part of what disappoints her as well is that she's lying to all these people all the time and, and she's often quite bizarre. Mm -hmm. And I think she hopes that someone is going to call her out on it and nobody really cares. And I think that that's a sort of more realistic, if actually more depressing view of the world than, um, you know, well, totally because it's everything it's ending. She's so small, you know, uh -huh. she's just this lost person and nobody's not like even down to, you know, people not really noticing she'd gone and like, yeah, I was thinking about, um, oh, oh, oh no, I'm not going <laughs> to, I was like, here, let me just spoil the book. I'll tell everyone. The <laughs> it's stuff, not fair. I spoil books all the time. When I the really... stuff in the book that happens that you will know having written it, mm -hmm. that is obviously a surprise, even this is stupid. I shouldn't be doing this, but I no, wanted to just be like, even you know the yeah. stuff. <laughs> so, so what I mean, what Josie's trying to say is, you know, the bit when the thing and Happen. then the turn, and then you go, oh, but this is hard to write. Was that a very about... difficult challenge? No, but I'm thinking it is so interesting that you know when there are kind of things that are done by characters in the book that are so kind of immoral and morally questionable that the consequences are still so kind of scant and it, I suppose that to me does really reflect the age we're living in in terms of how politicians behave and how celebrities behave and on the whole the opposite of kind of what people say is happening with regards to things like cancel culture and stuff like that yeah everyone expects there to be a big explosion but actually the worst thing that happens is like some people yell at you or even just make fun of you online right and mm -hmm. and once it happens to you you realize that it doesn't matter and then you're free um and that's kind of daunting but i think the parallel between the the narrator and and um you know the other character that you're referring to is that he he also expects i think something huge to happen when he mm. you know is do is is propag he's he's an online internet conspiracy theorist and he he does some other things as well um and he expect i think he he's probably doing it in part to like get some kind of reaction but in fact <laughs> it, there's no reaction that is going to be big enough to sort of satiate them. Mm.
Yeah, it's about ordinariness. It's not about, uh, I, I wanted to talk a bit about the fact that in your book, your attention to detail is wonderful. Like, I felt so excited to read something that felt so contemporary and yet so full of like this detail. I was like, yes, this observation. Yes, yes. And, and I was wondering, like, do you feel like you developed a certain style writing as a professional writer prior to writing the novel? Like, how did it come about in tech? Uh, like maybe that's a silly question, but I just loved I loved the style, and I would love to hear more about how you write and how it came about. Thank you. Um, how do I write? I have no idea how I write. I'm finishing an article <laughs> right now, and I'm like, how did this happen? I don't know. Um, and and but I think when I was writing the novel, I wanted to be able to to write what I wanted to write without worrying about a magazine editor being like, well, this can't be 7,000 words and it needs to come out tomorrow and we can't have you doing all these weird things in the middle. It needs to, you know, when you're writing a magazine article, you you have to have some humility because you have to explain some things and, and you know, speak to a wider audience. I think with a novel, you're making your own audience. And, and so I think there's a freedom that I felt in that from having written for magazines for several years. Um, I also just think I tried to think and sort of hold on to the novels that I really like and think about, you know, I really like Margaret Drabble. I really like Philip Roth. I really like these sort of personable, um, detailed, you know, uh, first person narrators who have a personality and who are are explaining the world to you and so I just tried to keep that in mind even though I think that that kind of thing is not so trendy anymore right now I don't know exactly I, I know a bit about the context of contemporary literature in the UK but obviously I know more about the US situation and I think that there's this sort of like fetish for concision or for like distilling everything down into a, an essential idea and it's this I think of it as a sort of fantasy that there's some kind of essential way that the book can be and that you can get there but I I see writing novels as as much more you know you can put anything in there you want and you just have to make it work <laughs> you just have to make it work there doesn't there doesn't exist some perfect novel that you have to re like search for um and this sort of the minimalist concise you know there's one sentence that evokes all these emotions has never done it for me and I think that that's maybe maybe a dissatisfying answer but that's why I write in this more maximalist way no it's not at all I was but, wondering if you ever did, did you worry about the fact that people uh, the unnamed protagonist are going to go oh that must be Lauren because oh she's been to Berlin and she likes peanut butter M &M. well, and also and, and so that writer, bit, that's what people yeah, love to do isn't it but that that bit of detaching and because I think especially in a first novel as well you very often there's a lot of that's a handy thing and then I'm going to turn that into something else did you did you find yourself at times thinking oh I need to detach myself one more step from this character so people don't keep going did this happen to you or were you just you just think I'll take these things which which are connected to to my uh, autobiography and then the then I can just go crazy with them all um, I think I was thinking more I can take whatever I want from my life and go crazy with it um, and and because the book is about these sort of personas that we build online uh, I thought that it would it would be um, cowardly to not add the diff extra level of creating this ambiguity between myself and the the protagonist um, particularly because there are so many of these conversations about 
um, the relationship between the author and the author's characters happening now, I think in particular because of the boom for autofiction and Ken Asgard and Rachel Cusk and all this. Um, and I think that those conversations are really interesting. A lot of people sort of roll their eyes about them, but, but I think it's really fun. Um, but I try not to be too serious about it when I'm kind of pressing on the relationship between uh, that character and myself, because obviously we do differ in a lot of ways, but you know, whenever a reviewer is like, oh, well, it's quite a lot like Lauren, then I'm like, well, you, you know, you've, I set the trap and you stepped into <laughs> it. So now you, you do this, don't, you know, it's like, that's not how we read a novel actually. Um, and I think, you know, writers have always done this. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's more that I think the, the panopticon and the, and the way that we're putting ourselves out there all the time means that it's, more vulnerable or or more it feels more volatile to use yourself or to impersonate yourself in some ways is sometimes how i think of it um because then people can tweet at you and be like you said this in your book and you're like that's not that's not what i mean you know, that's not what it means well that's yes. always you see it all the time you often see for instance quotes which say dostoevsky said this and you go no one of the brothers Karamazov said this that doesn't mean that or, or you know and, and and that seems to after after a certain amount of time the the divide between an author's characters and actually what they truly meant seems to become very if it's useful in an argument obviously that's basically how it works isn't it yeah and well an I argument. think I try to, you know, anything's really smart and interesting that she says or thinks is from me. <laughs> and anything kind of stupid and off the mark that she says is, is her own personality. That's the character, yeah. yeah. This is how Maybe it works. you could use different fonts. You know, yeah. when you really think, yeah, that's a really clever thing. And I'll, I'll use there, that'll just be a different font so they know this really is something that comes from the heart of the author. Oh, and then be... this is me just pretending that uh, the character's a bit silly. They're a bit, bit foolish, but that's very unlike me. So you can have different levels of font. That. Might even just be the size of font. It just changes oh depending on, on how close it is to... Uh, yeah, it'd be like a B.S. Johnson experiment or something like that. You know, he did a yeah. book where the, you only had the first page and the last page and everything else you could move around in any way you wanted. Oof. That kind of thing makes you, me feel sick. It would be too much for you, wouldn't it? Yeah, do the organisation. <laughs> I'm not here to do your work for you. I can't be putting the pages in order Got my oh, reading this on a windy day it's a disaster <laughs> so, um, lauren you mentioned um some writers that you uh that you admire and that you enjoy and i was wondering if you would mind like telling us which books you love and which you would recommend like yeah well speaking i when you were talking about changing the font size there's actually my it's i know it's 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 pretty naive and and facile to say you have a favorite book but if I had to say I had a favorite book it is definitely The Last Samurai by Helen DeWitt um which has a sort of cult following here but I try and recommend it to everyone um and she often changes the font size but as a joke it's just as a joke it's not to indicate characters but she, sometimes the characters are shouting and she puts it in there it's a very hard book to describe um but it's just really funny and extremely beautiful and poignant and also a really um, interesting experimental novel that's also extremely entertaining, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I think um, helpful to me when I was writing the book as well. 
that's interesting that you t- the, the the fear of because I don't think there's anything facile about having a favorite book. There's certain books that you just go today is the day to read it again, and I think mm-hmm. that's a it's it's again that almost feels to the 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 fear in all of the different ways that we get judged if we mentioned an author where other people have a, a, a and that sense of going no I here's a book that I go back to and here's an inspiration. Mm-hmm. When did you know you wanted to? be a writer because for some people I mean beyond being obviously obviously journalism but was was there a was it an author was it a book was there just a sense of of, of loving words that kind of drew you to thinking this is where I want to play I don't I mean when I I think I I didn't resist it but I didn't think about it so I grew up in West Virginia which is a sort of rural I wasn't from a rural area but there's you know the biggest city there has 50,000 people so everything is kind of rural um, and I, when I was really young, I was reading all of these sort of young adult novels that were narrated by like sassy kind of bitter teen <laughs> girls. Um, my favorites were by Louise Renison, uh, which I just loved. I just loved those books. Um, and I think that you can probably still see that influence of Angus songs and full frontal song in my, in my novel. Uh... Um, you you can definitely see it uh, and um, so I think I don't know that I thought about becoming a writer but I had all of these blogs that I didn't tell anyone about when I was a teenager and I would just like write in a journal on the internet you had secret um, blogs secret blogs yeah which I think it's I it's just because it's easier to write on on the computer than it is to write by hand uh, but they were secret yeah no, no, nobody knew about them um, and I thankfully they're gone now so I can't <laughs> go back to them nothing's gone they'll be on the oh. wayback machine oh, someone no. will have cashed them <laughs> I, I hope not. I don't even know what they were called so hopefully hopefully we're okay um, and then I went to college uh, and there was a really sort of serious writing culture and writing program there um, that I sort of had to like catch up to and sort of like learn about like Nabokov and like learn about Joan Didion like when everybody else who'd been to private school was like oh you know I've done seven internships at the New York Times and now I'm going to Thailand to write a piece of uh, travel reportage or whatever um <laughs> but, but I'm just annoyed that my face is not going to be on the sound recording <laughs> Uh, oh no this. we can hear it we can hear what your <laughs> face is doing the worst yeah. part is i want to be like where are they now and you'll be like running everything then yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're all in charge my my writing nemesis from my senior year of college started a very successful startup uh and became like a millionaire like almost immediately but i think he was already a millionaire so that's that um, but i you know i'm not listen he's not getting on this <laughs> podcast i'll tell you that for free <laughs> He's, yeah. he's blacklisted. <laughs> um, he beat me in a writing competition. Very annoying. Uh, uh, so I think I don't, you know, I don't really know when it started. I've just always written and had a, a, a I like playing with language and I have some need to do it. And I don't understand where that comes from, but I'm very happy and lucky to make a career out of it and not have to do you know be a doctor like um when Carlos Williams like and, being a doctor is like a plan b like, oh, uh, oh, being God. a doctor well it <laughs> seems terrible uh, yeah. it seems so hard and, yeah, and also not thankful in, like 
still quite thankless yeah yes um or you know some uh, I would also probably I would probably just work in marketing you know if I were not a writer I would just be like a copy person or whatever and be vaguely dissatisfied and go to fancy bars on the weekends you know that's that realistically that's probably what it would be yeah, it's not quite the Gatsby life, isn't it? What was her life? She was vaguely dissatisfied in fancy bars. <laughs> yeah, it was vaguely, you know. Don't even have the bohemian lifestyle at all. There's lots of humour in your book. And is it something, do you consider yourself a humorist, like, writer? Is it something that you're really conscious of putting in? Like, how how do you feel about it? Um, I don't think I, I, I think probably it's bad to try to be funny. I don't know. What do you, do you think it's bad to try to be funny? Do you try to be funny? I don't know. The... I, I, yeah, it's probably a dumb way of asking the question because I guess I want to be like, do you see yourself as a funny writer? Is that something that you just think, well, that's part of life or, you know? Well, I think life is funny. And I think that in order to be serious, you have to be funny. I hate, mm. you know, there's, there's like a style of writing that is like, I've never told a joke in my life and I don't like it. Um, uh, but it's also, you know, if you're writing a realist novel, it's not realistic if you don't have uh, humor in it in some way. Um, but mm. I try, you know, I would hope that my jokes land, that is key because what's worse than not being funny because you're too serious is not being funny because you're not funny. Oh, brutal. It's working out <laughs> that way, isn't it? Where you don't kind of go in print and here is the joke. It's that mm -hmm. bit that people go, I love that bit there and it really made me laugh. And you go, oh yeah, oh, good, good. I'm glad that came across yeah, as a joke. Just... It's that, that's, that's what, yeah, because I find that with writing the last book that I did where the editor would go, there's not enough jokes, put more in. And I, and I really do go, well, I want to write a proper serious book, actually. I mean, there can be some jokes in, but what do you mean there's not enough? There's at least 10%. No, there's got to be more. And then you really start to, hey, oh, I've taken something which I thought was interesting and now I've had to add a punchline. <laughs> I know. Well, when I first started writing this book, I think it, I struggled for like six months or so because it was too serious and I had to like arrive at this voice, at which point it just came together really quickly because it was so easy to write in this kind of um, exaggerated, snarky, ironic, cynical kind of tone um, that allows you to just put in tons of zingers, which there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> But it's so interesting as well because it's like these characters that are so like world weary and still so sad and so vulnerable as well. I think it's it's a really great uh, like achievement to be able to keep those two things going. Thank you. I'm trying to do it again, but it's I'm like, how did I do it before? I have no idea. <laughs> I, I feel like I always want to ask people what kind of things they're working on. I feel like it's the only thing you're not allowed to ask writers, but are you, are you working on another novel? Well, everyone asks them. It's just not, they're not going to tell you, you know? I'm working on some essays and I'm trying to start another novel. I love writing, no, I mean, I loved writing a novel. I have to assume that I like writing them all the time. It's just so it's just so much easier to say certain things when you can fictionalize scenes and, and put, put things in, in the minds of characters and have the characters try and interact with each other and fail to interact with each other and try and move through the world. Um, but, you know, at the beginning, I think is, I would think, I think a lot of writers would say that the beginning is terrible, but then maybe the whole, the whole time is terrible. I don't know. <laughs> 
Yeah, I had the, the Jonathan Coe when I was writing a book and I was having a nightmare with it. He said, "Yes, yeah, the first book is uh, it's just a nightmare. It's it's it's, it's impossible." And then it gets much worse. <laughs> <laughs> and, but but there are other people. It's like someone like Douglas Adams, you know, wrote Hitchhiker stuff like that. He would he writing was agony for him, and he had to be locked in his hotel room. But and then you talk to you know crime writers and stuff, like that, and brilliant crime writers who go, you know, get up in the morning and uh, I do about three to four thousand words of, uh, and then when I get to the murder, I stop, and that's the day done. And <laughs> and like, I mean Ian Rankin, who we've had on the, and, and Ian is, and I'm sure it's harder, that, but oh, he's no re- nonsense, isn't he? He Just yeah. gets on with it, and and then he goes, if it's not in there that day, I don't do it. He doesn't panic. And I remember when we, he was being interviewed by another crime writer called Mark Billingham. And Mark said, well, where have you got to with the new book? And he just picked up a carrier bag, a plastic carrier bag. And there <laughs> inside it, a great big stack of A4. <laughs> and he plonked it down. Yeah. And the first one just... But then he hands it to his wife and she starts to go, eh, actually, actually, actually. And then there's logic things. But yeah, it's a... I, I think the good thing is there's all varieties. There are those who it just goes, right, there we go. That's that done. And then there's lots of people who just, you know, even plugging in a laptop charger is... That's the day done. Yeah, well, it's it's terrifying. It's totally terrifying. And I don't want to be, you know, melodramatic about it, but it is difficult Uh as difficult as something can be when you're just like sitting in your house and you can eat snacks all day while you're working. Um, but I also work as a ghostwriter. That's mostly how I make my living. Um, and Oh my God, that's so interesting. Especially... <laughs> and those books, it's a very different process to write. So yeah. Oh my God. I expect we're not allowed to ask what you've written. Oh no, not really. Oh, I mean, it's not that interesting. It's not that interesting anyway. Um, the, oh. the, my name is on Alyssa Mastromonica, who is the deputy chief of staff for Obama, but my name is on those books. So I've done those, but I've done a few others too. Um, wow. But this is so interesting in the context of your book as well. Like, do you feel like that contributed to the theme of the novel? Yeah, I think the thing the things that really get me writing are are sort of widespread misconceptions, right? So I think like people want ghostwriting to be really sexy and mysterious um, and, and you know, like gossipy. And it is, I like doing it in part because I get to ask these kind of important people who've had, had interesting lives about their sort of, you know, when their boyfriend cheated on them, when there was some horrible, oh my God. Cha- you know, chaotic, thing happening in world politics or whatever and that's kind of fun um but it's really a straightforward thing for me and maybe that's because I don't see those books as my books and I don't I don't talk to other ghostwriters so I don't know if they have feelings of like needing more credit for what they've done but I you know don't see them as doing the same having the same goals that I have so I have a very sort of healthy relationship to those books and also you I mean I've only ever written them in like six to eight weeks so you have to just just bash over them yourself and just do it and then edit edit it right um and generally they have to be a bit looser they can't seem like they're written by a writer so it helps it's very it helps get you like to not be so precious about writing mm-hmm. even if writing a book in six weeks is it's very taxing God. but I think so again like this is so interesting to me because it it, it relates to the fact that like of course it's going to feel so much more vulnerable to be writing something where you get to develop a creative voice that's your own 
but also how exciting and how freeing to be like right this is gonna really feel like I've written this right and they have to you know they approve it and and it feels it feels like yeah and you're like you're like I can do anything and because I think too I have this like other form of income I wasn't so worried when I was writing this novel about taking risks or being experimental because I was not under the impression that I would get a huge amount of money and I did not get very much money for it so it was like it was like well this there's no reason for me to sort of succumb to the pressures of the market and like write a book that people can take to their book club or you know one of these thing you know something yeah, that people... Reese, where Reese Witherspoon is the person in the U.S. that everybody wants to impress with their books uh, and I was like you know I don't have to worry about Reese Witherspoon do you know Just she's in, read the book I don't think I would say probably not disappointing um, but maybe so does she, she have a book club then? So there's a Reese Witherspoon book club, like the kind of Oprah. And yeah, I think as well she develops stuff, doesn't she? She likes... yes, she has a she has a production company, and so she develops lots of things. And she has a very um, significant book club where if you are picked as the book of the month, I think she only. I also think maybe she only does one book a month, but I'm not sure. Um, and She's a busy you, woman. Mm-hmm. Well, She's I think also all of those celebrities who do the book clubs have people that. that find them so um the one the woman who I've heard that the woman who works for Kendall Jenner has like really sort of punk like alt-lit tastes so Kendall Jenner is often seen holding these like small press books yeah it's yeah you think she reads them I don't know I mean this this again comes back to the book doesn't it some of the things in that it's like (laughs) you know something that we found out here was that there was a a huge secondhand bookshop which started to explain that they had people who would come in and say uh there's a guy there's a politician and I need to fill his bookcase for when he's doing all the tv stuff in zoom now and mm-hmm. you just and that that bit of the yeah I love that idea that the people who run these book clubs I just saw a browsing the other day just pick nope there we are here are the twelve <laughs> possibilities oh, yes God. well also I like the idea that you're writing a novel and you're not thinking oh I hope people can take this on holiday you're just kind of thinking <laughs> I hope this ruins your fucking holiday mate <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know well I yeah I think there are plenty of books to take on holiday you know like I I don't need to do that there are lots of those that is taken care of um and taken care of beautifully well you yeah, know absolutely um so that's not i'm happy to provide the you know misanthropes and, and nihilists some <laughs> contemporary fodder <laughs> well the good thing is very few people are going on holidays in the uk <laughs> that's true. so this is a Fuck great time market. for your non-holiday based reading and um, we better better wind it up there um lauren oh. thank you so much fake accounts is out uh, now uh, in 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 hardback, uh, all over the place as well, not just in the UK and the US. Um, oh wait, can I ask one very small question, which is, do you have any books that you've recently read or or that you'd recommend that are coming out at the moment uh, that you'd recommend for people? Let's see. Um, I just read White City by Kevin Power, which I thought was really um, fun but also serious. It's very Martin Amosy, um, and I have read. Wink, uh, do transition baby, uh, that I also oh, cool. think is a really great novel as well. Um, so those yeah, are the three to read that. Yeah, it's 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 good. Brilliant. Cool. Thanks so thanks much so for coming much on for the show. Us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks very much for listening. Yes, Lauren's book is out now from all the usual places. 
links on the website along with uh, the reading list from this episode and all the other episodes as well, cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles. You'll also find links to the Patreon there as well to support the podcast and Cosmic Shambles as a whole. We'll be back next week with another new episode. Until then, take care, stay safe, and bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. (laughs) 